0: Ho, ho, ho. It's Gareth here from the Natural History Cupboard podcast. We thought we'd bring you this episode a day early so that you can unwrap it on Christmas. So let's get into it. Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. Ho, ho, ho. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast. The place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your Christmassy host, Gareth, and with me as always are my other Christmassy hosts. Aaron, say ho ho ho. Ho ho ho, happy Yuletide. Very good. And uh, Drew, say ho ho ho. Uh,
1: yes, we are indeed a trio of hoes.
0: Ah, <laughs> well, I was, I, you know, my, my other favorite expression of that would be I now have a machine gun. But oh, uh, yeah. as we're not reviewing Die Hard, one of the best Christmas films ever. Oh, it's oh, not a Christmas oh, movie. It's a Christmas film, Aaron. It's Deal not with it.
2: a Christmas movie. It happens at Christmas, doesn't make it a Christmas oh,
1: movie. for the cargo. I Does that mean Iron Man be...
2: 3 is a Christmas movie?
1: There will not be yeah. a four. We've been also joined by
0: Alan Rickman's ghost, apparently.
1: <laughs> Most of the Dakager won't be joining us for the rest of his life.
0: Very good. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the best Christmas films ever. And at this point you need to go and watch it because well, it's Christmas time. It's when you watch Die Hard.
2: It's a good movie. It's it's not a Christmas movie.
0: Anyway, my my thoughts and feelings on Die Hard and your thoughts and feelings on Die Hard aside. This week, we are doing our Christmas special. So, we've got the animals that all have a bit of a link to Christmas. uh, And we're going to, uh, well, tell you a little bit about them. But before that, let's jump into the news. Okay. Well, we're into our our news. Unfortunately, both the news articles we have this week aren't very Christmassy, animal news or environmental news articles floating around. But they are, no. well, one or at of least
1: these... not that we could find in like five no. minutes.
0: Well, this is <laughs> this is true. <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, I, I believe Drew's is a slightly down
1: uh, article. Um, yeah, it sort of has a uh, an okay sort of theme to it though, or like the ending is.
0: Hopefully, if we start off with yours, mine should hopefully bring back up a little bit because it's a a good news story that I've got for you this week. So uh, take it away Drew.
1: Yeah, so uh, my article this week actually was brought to us from someone on Twitter called NUS, N-U-S and it's from the Willamette Week and titled Reward Amount in Wolfpack Poisoning Nears $50,000. Uh, and it's subtitled, this could be the down payment on a house or an investment in a uh, college education, it could be a new truck or a new start. Um, now, when I first read that title, um, I don't know about you guys, I did think, uh, for fuck's sake, we're putting bounty on wolves. Putting a bounty that's on why. Wolves. I yeah. uh, but I was mistaken. Uh, so I don't know if it's titled badly or if I or the rest of us are just dumb, uh, but it's actually the opposite of that. The article reads, following donations from more than a dozen conservation groups, the Oregon Department of Wildlife announced this week that the reward amount has climbed to $47,736 US dollars for information that leads to an arrest or citation in multiple Eastern Oregon wolf pack poisoning cases. So it's actually a reward to help capture, Aaron's favourite term, pencil dicks that are poisoning wolves. It's not. I think it's that not. Is, a yeah, and actually, it's it's the opposite. So the ODFW, that's the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. Here on in, announced that in Hebr- uh, announced that in February, Oregon State Police discovered two deceased male and three female wolves in Union County. Toxicology reports showed the cause of death to be consistent with poisoning. Then, between March and July, state troopers discovered three more dead wolves, all believed to be poisoned as well alongside two deceased magpie and one skunk, also poisoned. Amarok Weiss, senior wolf advocate with the Center for Biological Diversity, said, "The poisoning of Oregon's wolves is a dark event in wolf recovery, but these ever-increasing reward pledges offer a ray of hope that those responsible will be arrested and persecuted prosecuted, excuse me. And Yvonne Shaw, the stop poaching campaign coordinator for OD.fw, said, when rewards get to this level, a level that can make significant changes in a person's life, they might stop to consider something they heard or saw. And then it repeats that quote at the beginning because this amount of money is quite significant. It really could change someone's mm-hmm. life. And then there's a number. There's a number there um, and an email address that people can use. Um, and it's called the Turn In Poachers line, TIP, which I quite like. My, do you think it's worth reading out the number on this as well?
2: I think, it's I worth think so. Yeah, yeah.
1: Just in case. Um. So the the number as well. Just you know, if you guys are just in just in case someone, yeah. yeah, in in the US in Oregon, and you may potentially be listening to this podcast and have information. The number is eight hundred four five two seven triple eight. Or the email address is tip at osp. Dot. Oregon. Dot. Gov. But yeah, I mean it is. Overall, it's not great news because you know wolves and other animals, as a uh, as collateral, uh, are being killed by these poisonings. And you know clearly, people still hate them. But this is quite a significant reward. I would say to people: don't worry about being called out as a grass. If you've got friends, associates, or whoever they might be who do this sort of thing, go and take it to the police. And just get them fucked because I, you shouldn't have people like that in your life. People that go out and uh, and poison animals. But that's uh, that was basically this this article. Um, like I say, I covered it because it was sent to us um, on Twitter. So I thought, well, do you know, what? I'll, I'll check it into the Cherry Christmas episode. No, um, it's very,
0: it's very good, I think.
1: But it, it, it does have a, a sort of a good ending to it because you know that's quite a significant amount of money. So a number of charities and organisations donated to this cause so uh, to to make this this significant amount i will just read them all out quickly so there's the oregon hunters association oregon wild humane society of the united states center for biological diversity defenders of wildlife northeast oregon ecosystems predator defense cascadia wildlands wild earth guardians wolves of the rockies trap free montana the 06 legacy grand uh, greater hills canyon council Peace for Animals and World Animal News. So all of these organisations have donated into this pot to basically get this, uh, this fucker, all these fuckers fined or behind bars or whatever it is that um, that they do to them in America. Death penalty maybe? Who knows?
0: Uh, I doubt that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it. But it's, yeah, that's, um, that's that article.
0: It's really good to see that money is being used as a, an incentive for doing yeah. the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Far yeah. too often it's used as an incentive to do the wrong thing. Hmm. Well, that turned out to I be agree. better than, than I thought it was going to be in the sense that uh, bit, I, thought,
1: the title. Yeah.
0: I thought it was going to be, let's get a reward for everyone to poison some wolves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, Poorly written headline for a very good article. Yes. Well, mine has a slightly happier No, I suppose. So uh, living in the UK, we will have all, well, for those of you listening in the UK, you'll have uh, experienced Storm Arwen a couple of weeks back. Um, Great name. Yeah. (laughs) Lord of the Rings (laughs) reference. I liked it. Um, Which uh, whipped through, did an awful lot of damage. Uh, I believe Mm -hmm. it came up across from the Gulf of Mexico anyway, sort of from Southern America where it, I can't remember how, how it works now. We get the sort of colder version of the storms that come from over from the americas over the atlantic i can't remember but anyway it has to do with with that we have got this week from the bbc turtle on the road to recovery at anglesey sea zoo so this is a kemp ridley's turtle one of the world's most endangered species of turtle that washed up on Tallacray beach in uh, north wales not somewhere where you tend to find them i'll start i'll start off with um reading my favourite bit from it, it's pointing out what I would point as the absolute most obvious thing in the world. Uh, It points out that um, Kemp Ridley's turtles, another tropical species of turtle, found in temperatures of around 25 degrees and above, much warmer than the average sea temperature of six degrees in North Wales at this time of the year. I mean... Mm -hmm. These are turtles that come from the Gulf of Mexico, so it shouldn't really be much of a shock that they live in warmer water than North Wales, which at this time of the year is a lovely place to be along some of those beaches, but you will get a free sandblasting of your skin uh, if you walk along some of those beaches this time of the year, and especially in the middle of a storm. So essentially, she got washed up uh, on this beach and has been taken to Anglesey Sea Zoo, uh, a small aquarium on the island of Anglesey on the far west, northwest coast of Wales. So the rare turtle was found stranded more than 4,000 miles away from home, uh, but is expected to make a full recovery, uh, the team caring for her have said. They named uh, her Tally, the Kemp Ridley's turtle, uh, and is believed to be from the Gulf of Mexico, and was found by a member of public on Tallycrae Beach near Rill on Sunday the morning after Storm Arwen. So she was pretty battered and pretty cold from being in those conditions. Uh, So she's been taken to the uh, the sea zoo for intensive care. Uh, The center's owner said the turtle is now recovering well, and we're delighted and excited to say that Tally has progressed extremely well in the last 48 hours since reaching uh, its natural temperature of 26 degrees. She's now moved out of the critical care and into a recovery stage, said Frankie Hobro. Uh, who I'm assuming is the the, center, the center's owner, Miss Hobbro uh, added that the staff are seeing a regular burst of activity from Tally and are gradually increasing the depth of the water in uh, her tank. Although the turtle is still on rehydration therapy, vitamins, and antibiotics, they do not appear to be any underlying conditions that concern them. She said, "So that's really good. That basically it's just been cold, battered around. Just needs a good feed up and." You know, hopefully they'll be able to yeah. send it on its way. These are the early stages of recovery and we're currently uh, going well and looking extremely promising. We're becoming hopeful that if this progress continues Tally may make a full recovery uh, so that she can be flown back to the Gulf of Mexico and released straight back into the wild where they belong which is a really good really good thought that to see you know yeah. an animal yeah. like that. Uh, in fact, I think it was Iron Maiden did this a cover turtle that turned up in the UK that wasn't meant to be here. And I'm fairly certain the lead singer of Iron Maiden, Bruce Dickinson, lent his plane out to, uh, to transport this turtle. So um, maybe Iron Maiden, you know, might be on oh, this cool. one uh, again. So she's currently uh, quarantined in a shallow tub. It's a purpose built turtle igloo type construction uh, to enable close monitoring and hands on treatment at the centre but a larger tank is being made ready for the turtle's rehabilitation over the next few weeks. Our next challenge is to get Tally feeding again, which may take some time. So we're starting off with uh, small food items to gradually encourage her to regain an appetite, said Mrs. Holbro. But yeah, they believe that the turtle lost its way whilst journeying through warmer seas further south on the Atlantic. And probably due to the recent strong winds and currents caused by storm, Arwen was... uh, blown off course however and it adds this as a really bummer at the end of the the article two other young camp ridley turtles have been found washed up on beaches in scotland but they were declared dead upon initial investigation so it would appear oh. that there's quite a few turtles within this area that have just been basically pulled along with these storms and and dumped up in in northern europe um where they uh, they definitely can't survive yeah. although if you are going along the beaches of North Wales in the summer, there is a chance you might see that one of the largest animals on the planet, and certainly the largest uh, turtle on the planet, and that is the leatherback sea turtle, which yep. does come to our waters during the summer to feed off uh, the countless numbers of jellyfish that we do get. But I uh, thought they
1: were looking for plastic bags.
0: Well, they, you know, they quite like- often find the odd. I mean, if you're <laughs> off grill you're going to find quite a few plastic
2: bags. Anyway, that's are my news article. <laughs> For ocean pollution in the area, sorry, is Rill particularly known for ocean pollution in that area?
0: British seaside town with amusements and everything on the the beachfront, kind of like mm. a mini Blackpool thing. Holiday makers in the summer, right. you
2: know. Yeah, fair enough.
0: About the same as any British seaside town, really. Well, you say yeah. that.
2: Well, I think that they keep our coastline very very clean, and well. You- Usually when, when the grovels is... come down here and, and leave all their crap, we've got a pretty good coast team that deals with it.
0: I will say also, that the locals, Welsh... locals
2: are very good at uh, uh, doing organising little beach cleans between ourselves as well. Mm.
0: I will say the Welsh Government is, is pretty on it with most things, and they seem to be doing an awful lot better at certain outbreaks, shall we say, at the moment, mm. than the English but... Government, but that's neither here nor there. Let's move on from that lovely depressing news. Uh, in fact yes. oh, Merry wait.
1: Christmas. <laughs> oh, oh, oh.
2: Well, I, I do have a, have a happy article. Oh you do, yeah. We're
0: gonna yes, throw you this do. in. Just, just a, a quick movie. We're gonna bring out an extra little present you didn't expect. Yeah, lucky. Just a
2: very lucky quick people? shout out to Highlands Wildlife Park, who just a few short days ago on the sixteenth of uh, of December uh welcomed their second bear cub specifically polar bear i should mention
0: include the the type species yeah
2: so the 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 rural zoological society of scotland announced it on the 16th of december the birth of a polar bear cub in highland wildlife park the staff there are over the moon obviously so that goes without that. saying uh cctv footage uh captured uh, in the den shows the mum and the Cubs snoozing, you can actually find that on, on RZSS, Highland Wildlife Park's website. So go there. Uh, they also have far more information. There's a quote there from the carnival team leader, Vicky Larkin, which will give you a bit more insight into, into this wonderful, wonderful news just in time for Christmas. So, uh, yeah, Highland Wildlife Park is my favourite zoo in Europe. Just want to say a big congratulations to them. They were the first place in 25 years to, to breed a polar bear. That's Hamish. He's now down in Yorkshire Wildlife Park. Um, and now they're they're welcoming the second cub four years later. I think it's four years later. Uh, so yeah, fantastic news. Well done. Hmm.
0: And yeah. it's got a very cute photo to boot.
2: It so has got a very cute. A
0: cute photo. photo of a baby polar bear. Definitely check that one out.
2: Fluffy, fluffy polar bear. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect sort of end, end to the news. A Christmasy episode.
0: So we've uh, we've opened some of the presents. Now let's move on to the uh, the Christmas dinner, as it were, and uh, yeah. stuff ourselves with three uh, creature features in one here, with yes. some uh, some Christmassy creature features,
1: and we'll throw in some arguments in there as well.
0: It's the creature feature, right? Well, we're into the uh, the main meal, the Christmas dinner of our uh, creature features uh, for this week. So Drew is going to start things off by telling us about a very iconic. British, and European
1: uh, Christmas Eve. Yeah, mainly British. Uh, for Europe, they don't really... They're not quite as obsessed with them as we are. My my creature for our our three-part Christmas special, three-creature feature Christmas special, is uh, the UK's favourite bird, uh, which is the European robin. Although, hopefully, interestingly, the European robin is the only species in its genius, uh which is Erythicus. And many of the other Robins around the world, like the American Robin, the Australasian Robins, and the South Asian Pekin Robin, are not related to Europe's Robin redbreast. European Robins are from, uh, are in the rather large family of old world flycatchers, uh, which alongside our Robin and obviously flycatchers, uh, also includes wheat ears and the chats. So stone chats, wind chats, uh, if you're into your birds. As you can probably guess, these other unrelated robins were named due to their superficial similarity to the robin redbreast by the fact that they have some red on them. You've got okay. some red on you. <laughs> uh, sorry, Aaron, what were you saying?
0: That's it, right? Right, okay. Well, the, the Australian robin, which I've managed to see one in the wild, has blue on <laughs> it as well. Which,
1: yeah, some of them, some of them aren't, don't have that much red. No, but... there's
0: very little to, to make you think,
1: oh, yeah, robin. Yeah, but you know, Europeans, it's what we do in it. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, but where did the OG robins get their name and why are they so Christmassy? So we'll tackle that first one first. So, in the 15th century, it became popular to give human names to familiar species. So, those that would hang around humans and settlements. Robin is, of course, a diminutive of Robert, and that's where Robin Redbreast was born. Uh, it's also where we get Jenny Wren, Jack Dor- and magpie uh, originally jackdaws and magpies were just called doors and pies uh, based on the noises that they were making jack was a common name for a an average guy so like like we say today the average joe uh, used to be sort of the average jack and maggie mm. sort of unfavorably i suppose to the front of magpie it was a very common uh, woman name um and it, it, they added it there because and i quote Magpies chatter a lot. That's where that came from. So it became mag- Maggie Pie to, down to Magpie. But anyway, back to Robins. Their original, I suppose, English name before Robin, uh, before Robin Redbreast and before Redbreast, was Ruddock, which is an old English or Anglo-Saxon word. And it meant Little Red One or Redling, which I quite I like.
0: like
1: That's nice of hmm. that. Is it? Uh, i it's got some sort of link to Dunnock as well. Quite possibly, actually, I didn't look into that, but yes, that's a good, that's a good shout. Uh, yeah, so that's that's the name, that's where Robin Robin comes from. Uh, it's, it's taken a number of little leaps and bounds by quite a little. I like Ruddock. Uh, might use that. Might use that more. people. I
2: was thinking that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So why the why the sort of association with Christmas and with winter in general? Well, again, we'll quickly tackle winter first, and that sort of goes into a bit of Robin behaviour as well. Um, Here in the UK, our robin population increases during winter as Scandinavian, Russian and Eastern European robins migrate over to us uh, because their winters become too cold and food becomes too scarce. UK native robins, uh, though, are typical little Englanders and they don't move far during the year. (laughs) Uh, They're also very territorial, again, just like the human little Englanders and will on occasion fight each other to the death, the little thugs. Um, they also sometimes just attack other small birds in the vicinity for no real apparent reason. Although I'm not sure they would go as far as some piece of shit UK citizens who try to obstruct the RNLI from rescuing refugees drowning in the British Channel. But uh, moving on. Uh, if a robin tried that, they'd just play the boat through. it. <laughs> you're,
2: making, you're making these birds that are one of like my favourite kind of British sites <laughs> to see sound more and more like members of the EDL.
1: So <laughs> I've I've actually going off going off script, I I used to think uh, I, I used to not be that keen on robins because I did think they were little thugs. And I've actually warmed to them because of how adaptable and how clever they are and just how seemingly friendly they are too. But when I was writing this and I was writing all about them being little own I went I I got a I got a uh, an inkling of my old my old opinion of them, if that. Oh, they're, disdain. They're just they're just little thugs. <laughs> but I do I wanted I just want to go on a record. I do actually quite like robins. And I and the, this uh, comparison to little englanders is, is purely for comic effect. Well, the fact <laughs> that I've seen more than a few of them get into fights where they've ended up breaking the other one's beak that should tell you. How yeah. Well, yeah. Each other. Sometimes they just try and kill each other. Mm. And Oh, so territorial, but yeah, adding to uh, adding to the popular uh, popularity, robins in general, uh, whether it be a native UK Britain first robin or a migrant, when uh, they're not as shy as other birds when it comes to human contact, they often advertise themselves and they'll get right up in your grill quite a lot of the time, particularly over winter, and this has made them very very popular with people for obvious reasons really. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons why they do this. The first, the first is that proper wild robins are known to follow large mammals uh, around forests or on the edges of forests. So deer, wild boar, uh, whose big feet and curious noses flush out insects into the open where the little birds can snap them up. Uh, it doesn't take much for a robin to feel at home following the activity of a human gardener, tilling uh, the soil, weeding or sweeping leaves that flushes food into view. Uh, yeah, it's quite an easy explanation as to why they hang around us so much is because mm. they are doing it naturally anyway. Um, the other reason is a simple one. Being a woodland edge species, the robin has lived alongside humans for a long time because that's quite often where we were, alongside rivers and alongside the edges of forests. Plus, in Britain, the tradition of killing and eating small birds has pretty much dissipated, uh, as far as I can tell anyway. I don't know anyone who does that. Uh, Whereas in France, this tradition has lasted much longer, which means robins are a bit more shy across the channel. They're quite friendly here because, I mean, (laughs) we don't go out of our way to uh, go and eat one. So on to uh, Christmas. Um, there are a few stories or legends of robins uh, and Christmas. The I've got a few that I'm going to read out to you. Uh, the, some of the more interesting ones that I found. So the first takes us to the Victorian period. This is probably one that most people know, um, and that's the tradition. That's where the tradition of sending Christmas cards started. The Royal Mail postmen wore bright red uniforms. They still pretty much do, and they oh. drive big red vans, uh, and this earned them the nickname of Robin or Redbreast. Um, Artists usually illustrate Christmas cards with pictures relating to the delivery. Eventually started drawing Robins, the bird, in place of the postman. Uh, This trend caught on, and uh, as we well know, it continues well into this day. Uh, But there are legends that predate this explanation of Robins and Christmas. Uh, Before the Victorians, Robins already had a strong link with Christmas and Christianity. In one tale, it said that when Mary was giving birth to our Lord and Saviour, Sir David Attenborough, notice that the fire they had lit was in danger of going out now just coming out of this story for a second i've never given birth before i also want that just to be put on the record as well never given birth uh, but i think mary might have been a little bit too preoccupied with baby jesus tearing her a new one to notice that the fire was going out but we'll, we'll carry on so the fire's going out mary might not be worried uh, to be honest because i hear you get quite warm when you're giving birth Uh, But anyway, the fire's going out. Suddenly a a small brown bird appears and it starts flapping its wings in front of the fire, causing it to roar back to life. Um, However, as the bird is tending to the fire, a stray ember scorches the bird's chest, causing causing it to become bright red. Mary declared that the red breast was a sign of the bird's kind heart, which would pass on to its descendants to wear proudly forever. So well done, Mary, for managing to focus on a distraction during probably the most painful hours of her life. Uh, this story is some sometimes told a little bit differently because I did find some different versions. Uh, one is that uh, Jesus was already born and a fire was lit. Typical careless Mary was distracted by something and the fire started getting a bit out of control. A robin put itself between the fire and the baby Jesus, flapping its wings for, uh, and keeping him from being burnt. It ends the same way, with the robin getting burnt on its chest, hence the red bread uh, breast. Excuse me. I would have thought Big Daddy G would have intervened, but oh well. Small bird doing a better job than both God and Mary, but do anyway,
0: you, do, do you get robins living in the Middle East?
1: Yes, I looked into this. They do, yeah. They are, uh, I think, the ones that are migratory. So the ones from sort of Scandinavia, Russia, the ones that live in colder climates. Some come here, some come to other areas of Europe, some go south. So they go down to the Middle no. East. So they do, they do end up down there as well. Uh, but anyway. There is one more tale uh, that predates Christianity. Uh, this one goes back to the old Celtic based traditions and it tells of the feud between the Holly King of winter, which is depicted as a wren, and the Oak King of summer, which is depicted as a robin. The story tells, um, it's quite a short one, of the Holly King being driven away and having his place taken by the Oak King in the winter solstice. Basically, the, uh, the year is getting. Yeah, the time of year is getting warmer. Um, however on summer solstice the holly king gets his revenge and it takes the oak king's place so the, uh, the year starts to get colder. Uh, it's said to happen every year and it represents the changing of seasons. Uh, very very old tale that one. You could find again a few different mm. depictions of, uh, of that. At the end of all this I think it's fair to say that we've had this association with robins and winter for quite a long time. So to finish, European robin uh in terms of conservation they're doing fine um they're adaptable little bullies and as mentioned uh they they're used to following larger animals around so they've been very quick to tune themselves into human activity and i don't think we need to worry about them anytime soon which is which is nice because they're i mean they're going to hang around so we might as well like them Uh, most of you listening in the uk and probably much of western europe will probably have one regular robin visitor to your garden um, if you feed them in your garden, millworm, seed and suet are all firm favourites. And even if you don't feed, it's always a good idea to leave the water bottle out for neighbouring wildlife, particularly over winter. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of debate on whether feeding garden birds or any animal is beneficial or detrimental. There's something we might sort of explore next year, I suppose. But ultimately, yeah. their natural habitat is it's depleting. And supplementing them with some food seems like a reasonable response to this to me. Uh, especially, if not exclusively, over the colder months, um, less so over summer, so they can sort of fend for themselves and sort themselves out. Well, especially
0: for a bird, like you say, that hangs out on the edge of human civilization. We've been part of its diet in the sense of providing it for thousands of years.
1: Yeah, exactly, yeah. But, I mean, regardless of where you are on that particular topic, is to whether you think it's beneficial or detrimental, um, I would still offer a water station to pretty much anything uh, in your garden. You can't really do much wrong there. Um, And we're currently experiencing a bout of avian influenza. Mm. So please make sure feeders and water stations are regularly cleaned. Again, if you're you're doing this over sort of spring and summer, particularly clean them because they will rot much quicker. Um, And report any dead birds you find to officials who can advise you further. That's a a reasonably brief foray into the European robin. Uh, They were voted the UK's Favorite bird back all the way in the 60s, uh, and a title that still retains. And it seems it's very, very likely to stay that. Way. So yeah, there you go. Yeah. I hope I haven't placed the province uh, too much there with with the side, but you know they are they are quite boisterous, but at the same a time, charismatic right? little birds. Go for it.
2: They hang around human civilization. Uh, hmm. uh, it sounds very much like the stories you hear of other species becoming domesticated. Have they yes. ever been domesticated?
1: Oh, good question. I didn't find anything about that. Um, I imagine, because quite often, particularly over winter, you'll find if you've got a resident robin, you can get them to a point where they will sit on your hand and take mealworms yes, off of can. it. Um, they very readily do that. But I don't think there's any sort of need for them to almost domesticate themselves I don't think there's any real need for us to domesticate them so I don't think there's it's been any active for us to domesticate
2: them. am not, no. not
0: talking about domesticating no. them but there is and I have seen both here and in Australia them being sold as specialist aviary birds which would be a, you know a bit of an odd one to have here mm. but I could imagine people wanting them in in Australia or uh, other places as an aviary bird but if I remember correctly I don't think they do particularly well in aviaries vaguely remember something like that
1: yeah I did find a tiny bit on I forgot to write it down but I did find a tiny bit on you know we did the classic European or English British thing of uh, trying to reintroduce them or not sorry not reintroduce them of trying to introduce them to australia and new zealand because you know over winter we wanted the little robin hanging around but i don't oh, think they took think. too well to it
0: well we'll move on from the the starter uh, into uh, the the main course i don't know the uh, i don't know what do, you, what, what, do you, what part of the meal do you want to be aaron
2: uh, main course is a good no it can't be main course uh, i don't care <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs>
0: Nice and decisive. Well, we'll move on to your creature feature, which is a very, very classic Christmas animal, one that uh, is associated with a certain man in a red suit.
1: Yeah. Aaron's doing Double Deer December, isn't he? Double Deer December. Oh, yeah.
0: Double Deer December. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah
2: doubling down on deer. Yeah, so the animal I've chosen for our Christmas episode is a species I've had the privilege of working closely with for around four years of my career. It is an animal that is quintessentially festive, uh, as Gareth alluded to, uh, almost transcending various cultures and celebrations to many extents. Uh, And it is fascinating in every sense, special among its family lineage and peers. And I'm talking, of course, about reindeer. I feel strongly that as we've much every species we've covered collectively as a team this year Um, reindeer deserve more time than than a creature feature can really offer them but uh, I'm sure revisit them maybe sometime in 2022 but for now here is my fascinating facts about reindeer in 15 minutes or more likely under Um, so (laughs) what's in a name note that for our American friends this might be slightly confusing because uh, in Europe we refer to the species Rangifer tarandus as reindeer. Period. But across the pond, they refer to the uh, the domestic reindeer as well reindeer, and they refer to wild reindeer as caribou. And the etymology of both words is is equally interesting. I think the word reindeer comes to us through Middle English as cränderi, which actually comes from two Old Norse words before Middle English. So Crane is the, I think I'm pronouncing that right, is the old Norse word for reindeer and dire is the old Norse word for deer. Um, so the Norse would have called this animal Crane, uh, but then when it comes to English, we needed extra, extra clarification on what it was. So we called them essentially reindeer deer. <laughs> so that's, that's our word for it. Caribou is actually a French-Canadian corruption. And it comes from the Mi'kmaq word "kalapu," which literally means snow shoveler. And just as a sn- uh, just as a side note to show a bit of respect, the uh, Mi'kmaq people were a northeast First Nation tribe located in Nova Scotia, Quebec, uh, northeast of Maine. Today, the tribe is around 170,000 people in its population. So, so that's that's their name. Uh, now, my next fact is snow blind, snow problem. Sorry. <laughs> uh, the same UV light that renders you painfully blinded if you remove your skiing goggles a bit too recklessly on a sunny day in the Alps is the same UV light that makes life so much easier for the reindeer. Migrating to the Arctic circa 10,000 years ago, reindeer have adapted beautifully in an incredibly short space of time. Uh, their UV vision allows them to take in environmental and spatial uh, information that standard mammalian vision just couldn't perceive in such extreme conditions. Uh, they don't just see the UV light, they can actually pinpoint food threats, find shelter and traverse safely using uh, using it. By comparison, the bog standard mammalian vision afforded to us uh, and most of our kin, in fact I think reindeer are the only mammals that can see in UV. Our mammalian vision is nowhere near as good in in this sense um it won't allow uv to pass through the lenses so for us being surrounded by uv light from the sun which has been bounced around off a, a super reflective um surface such as the snow that covers their environment our lenses and cornea absorb most of the damaging effects to protect our retinas and this can cause burns that are usually temporary but range from frustrating to downright agonizing and it manifests itself as an almost cataract like cloud over our eyes reindeer don't get this so uh, it, it allows them to fully utilize the the um that spectrum of light whereas we see in what we refer to as visible light so next fact behind every great man is an even greater woman or a team of them, perhaps. Reindeer are the only species of deer in which both males and females grow antlers, but they do so at different times of year. Uh, They're also the largest and heaviest antlers of all deer species when you compare the weight of the antler and the size of the antler to the body size. Uh, whilst the antlers start to grow at the same time for males and females, the length of time the antlers are held before shedding is different. Uh, so we know that uh, males use the antlers to battle rivals for harems of females we also know that they use these antlers to defend those harems once they've won them Um, and it's that's the same as red deer that we discussed last time but why would females need antlers the answer of course is food sourcing primarily Uh, the term snow shoveler refers to in part A reindeer behaviour that includes employing the antlers in digging through snow to find food. Now, whilst males lose their antlers after the rutting and breeding season is well and truly over, they actually drop them around November. Females keep them right the way through winter and into uh, right up to May, basically, as they have to feed for two, so to speak. So the necessity to keep well fed throughout the gestation period, keeping mother and developing baby well nourished is, is paramount. But wait... So males drop their antlers in November, but females keep them through to May. That's right, kids. That means that Santa Claus, or preferably Father Christmas or Old Man Winter, is led by a team of eight unfathomably strong female reindeers known as cows. There is a catch to this theory, however. Firstly, as antler growth is extremely energy consuming, not all females grow them. In fact, where food is scarce, the antlerless females are more prevalent and often dominate the range. Also, and something that again works against my initial hypothesis here, is that castrated males not only um, not only are easier to work than intact males and females, but their antlers shed cycle becomes similar to that female reindeer. To counter that point, though, castrated males tend to grow more brittle antlers, and since all of team santa's steeds have impressive racks yes this is the correct term for reindeer Uh, (laughs) antlers. i'd argue that they are still very much female so next fact knees that can snap four times quicker than you can say fanos if you've ever enjoyed the honor of observing reindeer you may have bore witness to a subtle but noisy phenomena involving their knees clicking as they are operated don't panic when you hear this this isn't a species-wide case of arthritis Is in fact, a method of communication. Uh, The knees click, basically, as they move. Um, Now, if you imagine that you're with your family and friends and your clothes, everybody's wearing clothes that are kind of well-colored for hiding in your location, which itself is essentially white from floor to sky with all landmarks eerily blanketed um not to mention the weather is blowing a blizzard there is safety in numbers and safety is vital for there are wolves at your door not to mention the bears but you can't really see and can barely hear over the wind so you need a reliable method of communicating your whereabouts and anything of interest and that's it really their knees are just having a good chin wag or toe wag in this case maybe so and now i've got i've got a special bit i've got a special part to my uh to, to my creature feature, if you go, if you guys will uh, humour me, I, I've actually got a Christmas song thing for the two of you and for and for our listeners. Ooh. So okay. I apologise in advance, but here comes the song. So it goes on this: <coughs> Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer was an American money-making scheme. But if you ever saw a cold reindeer, you might actually believe that when on. W- one foggy festive eve, Santa came to say, Rudy, because she's a girl, with your blood vessels so bright, you won't outdo a small mag light. Other torches are available. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, ladies and gentlemen of the cupboard, whilst I deny your child the belief in Rudolph himself, there are, of course, only eight reindeer p- pulling that sleigh. I will not deny the science of the red nose itself. Uh, Select populations of reindeer native to the most extreme Arctic regions, those found in Alaska, Greenland, Canada, Russia, and Scandinavia do in fact have red noses or at least very pink noses. There appears to be a vast and incredibly dense network of blood vessels squished into that snoot uh, to aid in supplying blood and regulating body temperature. Not only do these deer populations have to deal with extremes of temperature in their daily lives, but once a year, they pull a sleigh at speeds and heights we can only envy. And so keeping these blood capillary beds are vital in stopping them from stopping their noses from freezing. Basically, researchers have actually recorded the nose and hind legs reaching temperatures of 24 degrees Celsius, which obviously in their environment, that's that's pretty warm. Uh, and it, it indicates that the blood vessel networks serve in bringing warmed blood closer to the surface when the animal gets overheated. And lastly, a friendship that has stood the test of time, despite previous... This is a relatively short one, actually. Despite previous studies, new evidence suggests that reindeer may have domesticated may have been domesticated well over 2,000 years ago. So previous studies kind of put it at uh, like... The 1100s, but um, new studies are bringing more to light that kind of indicates it may well be one of the earlier species to experience domestication. It's possible that the Nenets people of the northern Arctic Russia. Uh, part of the reindeer range. Uh, we're actually the first people to, to domesticate reindeer, and like I say, it, it could have happened well over 2,000 years ago. Um, so with all that down, all there is to say is uh, go Dasher, go Dancer, go Prancer and Vixen, on Cupid, on Comet, on Donner and Blitzen, and Merry Yuletide, to all and to all a very happy and hopefully plague-free, uh, though I doubt it, new year.
0: Wow. Very go. good. You didn't think that reindeer could get any more deer Deary? Deary. <laughs>
1: Rain reindeer reindeer deer.
0: reindeer deer, deer. it Dearly beloved reindeer yeah well we'll move on from your uh, reindeer clicking their their uh knees together oh,
1: I just I just want to I just want to quickly say on rudolph I I think that story I think that's a I think it's a horrible story is basically the moral of that story is until you're useful to other people uh, yeah you're going to get bullied for your difference you're going <laughs> to someone yeah for being different good thing it's
2: he's not a real reindeer yes no, the true. others are there's only eight reindeer pulling that sleigh Two, oh can um... i just say something just real quick on the subject yeah. of reindeer i didn't think about this but i need to say it i need to get off my chest can every, all the listeners if you've got kids can you stop putting carrots out for reindeer it's very bad for their stomach oh this, yeah this is this is a much cheaper alternative and it's it's much nicer to get your kids involved in uh and getting them out into nature but go for a walk uh, in any natural spot, and, eat, and collect mosses because uh, mm. that is what reindeer eat. They eat mosses and lichens. And I'm not expecting you to peel lichens off of. Off probably, probably don't but get fly agaric either. D- yeah, d- d- yeah, stay away from fly agaric and stuff. But but certainly g- uh, go collecting mosses and and leave the moss out for your reindeer because that is what they eat, and that's going to give them a nice healthy meal to get them on their next, uh, their next flight, whereas carrots are going to give them stomachache, they'll be puking and turding all over the world.
0: <laughs> and no yep. one wants to be hit by flying reindeer poo. <sighs> <sighs> Falling reindeer poo. We go from your flying reindeer to another bird. This one is very much connected to Christmas because it's the one that a good proportion of the planet is going to be eating on Christmas. Uh, it's a bird that I absolutely love alive and quite like it. Dead as well. So um, the turkey. <laughs> Wait,
1: that's wow! So- wow! <laughs> Can
2: have go cool with, with dead. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> dead? Cooked, absolutely lovely. So the turkey, which is a bird that most people are very familiar with, even if you've never seen a live one, you know, you you, you ask people to make a turkey sound, they they know how to make that sound because it is <laughs> very good. Uh, it's quite iconic. Um, So the turkey is uh, Meligris uh, galopovo, which I think is a lovely uh, scientific name for this particular animal. Uh, And it's a large bird native to North America. Now, there are there are two species of turkey. You've got the wild turkey, which is the one that we're all familiar with. It's the one that we eat because it's the domesticated version comes from the wild turkey. Uh, And they're found throughout eastern and central North America, pretty much in wooded, open environments. You name it, they live in a a variety of different places, like most large sort of ground fowl. Uh, The other species is the oscillated turkey, which lives in the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. And they are quite different from their, their North American cousins in that they're very, very metallic-y in their color. They're really, really bright coloring, sort of like that bright... Metallic oil on water sort of look to their feathers. They're really pretty birds, absolutely stunning. So the fossil record for turkeys goes back quite a way. Turkeys evolved in North America uh, over about 20 million years ago, and they share a recent common ancestor with grouses, pheasants, and other members of the uh, the game birds. So the wild spe- uh, the wild turkey species, like I say, is the ancestor to our domesticated bird, which was domesticated approximately. 2000 years ago so they've been around for quite a while in sort of human terms now the two species that we know of of extinct turkey which we have uh, sort of evidence for is the californian turkey uh, as well as the uh, the southwestern turkey both of them living in north america but went extinct thousands of years ago, uh, essentially not very much to do with with humans. The name turkey as well actually does have a bit of an odd background to it and two, two competing theories on, uh, on things. So there are two possible explanations for the name turkey. One theory is that when Europeans first encountered turkeys in America, they incorrectly identified the birds as a type of guinea fowl, which had already been imported into Europe by Turkish merchants right. via Constantinople and were therefore nicknamed turkey cocks. So Middle Eastern merchants were called turkey merchants as well. Uh, And as much of the area was part of the Ottoman Empire at the time, the name of the North American bird uh, thus became turkey fowl and then shortened to turkey. The the other theory arises from turkeys coming to England, uh, not directly from the Americas, but via merchant ships from the Middle East, where they were domesticated, and the importers then named the birds after turkey cocks, because they were imported into the Middle East again. Essentially, the same sort of story. So somewhere along the line, turkeys mm-hmm. were taken to Turkey and uh, yeah. seemed get their name, uh, therefore, afterwards. So other European names for turkeys incorporate uh, an assumption of their Indian origin as well, because a lot of the, uh, the sort of names that they are in um, French and Italian... All go on the assumption that these were birds that were being brought back from India, because if you remember correctly, Christopher Columbus thought he was going to make it to uh, to uh, to India uh, and the spice route, when in fact he ended up in North America because he was an idiot, he didn't know how yeah. to
1: navigate. I was about to say he was an idiot. I'm glad we agree. <laughs> so,
0: let's say other European names for them incorporate this assumption, uh, such as the dindi, meaning from India in French. So, um, yeah, the, if you ever come across it in, in another language, basically where it seems to uh, to get its name from is this weird connection to a place that you would never find a wild turkey. So I'm going to send you now a picture. Okay. Which we will then put up with this episode as well. And I'm going to, uh, to send this to you because this is turkey anatomy quiz for you. Coming to you now.
2: As you'll read it, as you, sorry, as you're... Um... As you're speaking, taking it in and having a look at like like pictures of them and a little a few like interesting bits of information about them. They they have a lot of uh fascinating history, don't they?
0: Oh yes. Turkeys are fascinating birds and have been we'll say we've been domesticating them and undomesticating them and redomesticating them for about two thousand years now. I I've got you,
1: I've got a quick question. You were talking about um like different languages, and um, I've, I've just oh no, it's not a question actually, it's more of a reflection. I've got a feeling, isn't the German word for turkey like truthan or something like that? And I think it means something like danger chicken or some <laughs> something along that line. I, I remember it being no, a, no, like, I don't, I I don't, don't the have the German translation. translation. Oh, wait, don't the Germans have an amazing name for these or something? Yeah, or like Threatened Chicken or something like that. (laughs) I officially love that name. I think that's brilliant.
0: So, if you would like to uh, open the picture that I've just sent to you... Yeah, I've 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 opened opened it. Yep, you should see a picture of a domesticated turkey, which is essentially the exact same as a wild turkey, the only Uh difference being the colour. And you'll see that there are a couple of different lines pointing to different points on the turkey's head and neck. When we think of turkeys, we quite rightly think of all these weird bits on their face because they do have some very, very odd anatomy on their face. But, Aaron, do you want to take a guess at what you think number one on that is called? And this is basically a spot on the back of its neck. These have all got some amazing names.
2: I was hoping for number two or three, but okay. Number one, (laughs) I'm going to go with the... It's the hole at the back of the... Behind the head, yeah?
0: Um, well, specifically, no, this is just sort of the uh, the sort of lumpy skin at the back of the the neck. Okay,
2: uh, I've got no idea, so I'm going to go with the uh, dinodermis. <laughs>
0: That's a good guess. Uh, but these are caruncles, of these lumpy bits on the back of their neck. They are essentially um, used to sort of show off. Um, they can be flushed with blood. Now, Drew, okay. do you want to take a guess?
1: At what number two is called? What number two is called? Uh, yep. I think it's. I think it's probably called the uh, the the dangus nose. <laughs> the dangus nose. <laughs> the dangus. Dangus nose.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, this is the bit that's hanging down the, off the front of the uh, the nose of the turkey. Effectively, it's this big long bit of skin that can actually um, retract and shrink right the way back up. Uh, it depends on whether the turkey is using it to basically show off. Ah, the telly dangers. Dangus- dangus- this is possibly my favorite word of the uh, the day. It's mm. the snood.
1: Oh, oh nice.
0: Nuggies okay. okay. have a snood. A snood. Yeah. So the other bits that are on there is you've got the wattle, which is number three, which is the dangling. I knew that was the wattle. It's also known as a dewlap as well. You've got at number four, you've got the maple, which is the uh, larger, chunkier bits around the base of the neck. And then Turkeys, as well, have a tuft of feathers that stick out in front of their chest, and that's called the beard. So they've got quite interesting anatomy. And these are all just used to basically show off uh, to the females to make sure that they uh, they see how big and uh, uh, how big and sexy they are. They are like
2: worrying a... looking animals, aren't they?
0: <laughs> just like many other game birds, they've all got their ways of showing off. Sage grouse have got those two massive sacks that sort of come out at the front of them to make sounds. These guys uh, make that very classic gobbling sound, and which is where it gets the name. They also will drag, the, the males will drag their feathers on uh, the ground to basically make a bit of a rattling sound. And uh, they lek as well, which, as we've pointed out before, is what um, a lot of ground birds and game birds do to show off uh, to each other. But they can get into serious fights, uh, and those caruncles actually help to protect the neck of the, uh, the bird if, uh, if two males get into a really serious fight with each other. Uh, and as you've probably seen, they've got fairly decent claws on their feet as well. One fact about the snood for you. The snood can, can they be between... Can they swing anywhere... it around? Sorry?
1: Can they swing it around, the snood?
0: <laughs> I'm as guessing it be good. <laughs> well, it can be anywhere between 3 to 15 centimetres in length. That's 1 to 6 inches. Uh, depending on the turkey's sex, uh, health, and mood. So uh, mm-hmm. it's, all, uh, it's all happening with the turkey. Now, we come to the main thing when it comes to turkeys, because, well, like I say, we've been, uh, we've been around turkeys for a while as humans. We've been eating them for a while as humans as well. Uh, the first ones are domesticated by the indigenous peoples of Mexico, um, from at least 800 BC onwards, these domestications were either introduced into what is now the southern, uh, or independently domesticated a second time by indigenous peoples in that region by about 200 BC. So that they may have been domesticated at least three times in their history of of being around cool. humans. Uh, at, first, at first, they were being used for their feathers, uh, and turkey feathers themselves are quite nice looking feathers. They're, you know They're big, they're impressive, and I believe, I could be wrong on this, I do believe turkey feathers are, are still used as uh, archery feathers. Yeah, but isn't, yes, it, they
2: are. isn't it just from the left wing?
0: Yeah. The flight, it, the flight feathers do, from the left wing. Yeah, it's to do with very certain ones. They've been around, you know, being used by humans for a long while. They're thought to be used for sort of ceremonial headdresses and things like that, making of robes and blankets out of their feathers. Capes. Yeah. Turkeys were first eaten by Native Americans uh, from about AD 1100. And compared to wild turkeys, domesticated turkeys, uh, which have been selectively bred to grow much larger in size for their meat. Now, I've got some numbers on how many turkeys are eaten every year. And Mm. I've also come across... A fun little website which I never knew existed until uh, earlier today. So, how many turkeys do you think are eaten in the UK around Christmas time? Mm, uh,
1: How many many people are in the UK now? Like, uh, is it sixty million? Actually, not. Uh,
2: Yeah, sorry, four and a half million was. I'm going to go with. I'm going to go about eighty, eighty-five million.
0: Eighty-five
2: million.
1: Okay. I think there's more people than there are in the Yeah, UK. there's
2: more birds than there are people. <laughs> yes, but I I believe especially in the UK where we work to the bone and don't have time to uh, everyone's
0: to eating the, one turkey each and then a bit more.
2: <laughs> no, I I think it's more of a case of of um how, how the I I think it might be linked to uh, I'm just bullshitting, by the way, but I think it might be linked <laughs> to like ha, like how many like families and that will split and you're spending okay. Christmas eating turkey at one place and, and Boxing Day eating turkey at another place. Now, it's not going to be all family, so I'm not going to double the number of of turkeys to people, but I should think there's probably either, a, uh, it's either around 60 million or it's, it's between 60 and 85 million, I would have thought.
1: Okay, so you're going between 60 and 85. Drew? I'm, I'm going to veer down towards uh, 20, 20 million.
0: Twenty million. Well, I can both say you grossly exaggerated how much turkey we eat in this country. Because okay. in the UK we only eat ten million turkeys over Christmas. That
2: shocks me. That yeah. genuinely shocks me.
0: But let's go across the pond again to the homeless. Homeland. Homeland. Now this is this is where the numbers get big. In the US, at Thanksgiving alone, forty-six mm. million turkeys are eaten. Yeah. So uh they're also eating about 22 million around Christmas. I couldn't get exact numbers for um, how many turkeys are eaten worldwide because they are eaten in other countries as well. It just seems to be the UK and the US where there seems to be stats for them. However, in doing research for this uh, particular creature feature, I came across Worldometers Info, which is a website that gives you a live population count of all the turkeys in the world. Oh wow! Oh yeah. <laughs> that, and you is, can sit there. Is that there
2: farmed ones or is it you including can, wild ones? You can sit there and you can, can watch 000,
0: the uh, turkey 7, count. 8, 5, so yeah, currently at the time of recording, there are eighty-five million six hundred and ninety-eight thousand seven hundred and fifty-eight turkeys in existence.
2: Oh, once just hatched then.
0: Yeah, there are some being hatched. just gone up. When yep. I
2: when I read it, literally thirty seconds before it was, it ended in a seven.
0: And the turkey population since uh, nineteen fifty uh, to to, uh, to twenty twenty has gone from uh, twenty million uh, to upwards of eighty million. So uh, they've increased in population by quite a bit, and it's gone up again by one. So um, expect that to drop down. Welcome to the again.
2: world, new turkeys. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah,
0: live turkey birth there for you. So, turkey Watch 2021. So, yeah, that's a fun one to uh, to look out, uh, to watch uh, live turkey numbers, you know. So. <laughs> oh. But, yeah, there, there's the turkey, a bird which in itself is the Christmas meal, um, but in itself is a fantastic bird. Oh, and one little myth-busting thing. Uh, it is a myth that Benjamin Franklin suggested that the turkey be the US national bird, uh, which is sad because I always thought up until finding out about that, that um, he had suggested that. I think it would make a far better US national bird than the bald eagle, which is just a fish-eating, scavenging eagle. Yeah, I was
2: going to say, they're more terrifying than the bald eagle. <laughs> <laughs> if you've ever played Ark around Thanksgiving... Oh, sorry. If, let me reword that. If you've ever played Ark around American Thanksgiving, uh, the um, there is not a sound in that jungle more terrifying than a turkey. <laughs> they are unstoppable
0: killing machines i mean as they should be
1: yeah the definite definite danger danger hen danger <laughs> chicken so there is our christmas meal of
0: uh creature features so hopefully that's got you nice and hungry for turkey wanting to go and see a reindeer and maybe even go and feed some robins so let's hop on in to our emails before we disappear off to work to go and rip open some presents bing You've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Right, well, it's time to open the Christmas cards of of emails that we've been sent. We've got one uh, to uh, to read today. Drew, what have we got?
1: Yep, uh, not a Christmassy-based question, uh, but it is, it is a simple one. It's for, uh, from Jack Volcaris, um asked, what sort of wood is the cupboard made out of? And I think this is uh, quite a good question, because... I mean, basically, we can sort of, as the year comes to a close, just explain the uh, the cupboard part of, uh, of the name. The concept mm. of the cupboard. The concept, yeah. The original cupboard. What it's is an the cupboard?
2: ethereal, uh, it's like a world between worlds. It doesn't exist and yet exists yeah. everywhere at all times.
1: It means different things to different people.
2: <laughs> but uh,
0: in answer to in sort of an actual question, I believe the actual cupboard is made out of plywood yeah
1: Probably. yeah shitwood basically yeah the cheapest um, that they could find. cheapest cheapest wood that they could find
0: it does the the the, we the even to cupboard it. itself is an old room in a manor at the place where all three of us used to work yeah so it's uh it still exists you know i'm sure you could go and ask for tours but uh, no one there will actually understand what on earth you're talking about because no one there was actually interested in the fact that we were using this room to do a podcast. So uh, no. the, the actual room itself does exist. And I'm sure, you know, in years... All of us now, are out of it, though, now. All of us know, yeah. are out yeah. of that cupboard.
2: We, we can all now... Sell them. Carrying,
0: we carry the spirit of the cupboard with us. We do. Even As though, I say, it's an ethereal...
2: It's an ethereal yeah. place that doesn't exist and yet exists in all places at all times.
0: Exactly. Mm. We're not inside the cupboard. The cupboard is inside of us.
2: If you put the TARDIS yeah, the cupboard is inside, inside, of inside you. a hyperspace lane from Star Wars, that's kind of what we're looking at. It's like, <laughs> it's like an integral part of Yggdrasil.
0: Yeah. To give you a brief tour of the cupboard as well itself, it has a desk, um, there's a couple of chairs. There's a filing has- cabinet. It has a stretcher, which should tell you all you should know. It has a stretcher in it as well. a (laughs) heater that's usually in the corner makes the room very nice and warm.
2: I believe there's actually rat bites in the stretcher. Oh dear! (laughs) Well, it's what looks like rat bites anyway.
0: But yes, uh, in our earlier episodes, you can hear us certainly in there. You
2: uh, can hear the peacock and outside.
0: Occasional visitors to the window. Is he
2: outside, right? or has he fallen through the roof that's been rotting there for <laughs> years?
1: Well, we'll never know. We will never know. We will never know. But
0: yes, that is that is the... Uh, well, actually, uh, let's go with this. What wood would you like the cupboard to be made out of, you two? If you could Ooh, pick a wood.
1: I could pick a wood. Mm. Well, it would, it would have to come from... It would have to come from the... Uh, metaphorical wood of Darwin's Tree of Life. Oh, do you like that? really boring. I'm going gonna go down, to now.
2: I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna go down a similar route to, to Drew. I would. I could pick some of the best trees in the world to do the walls floor and ceiling that off, but the door would have to be carved from the wood of Yggdrasil itself. Yeah, However, nice, that's nice the that's, goal though. That's the dream. However, in reality, I, I suggested this to the guys just now. It should be made out of balsa wood so that all the tears that we cry from all the bad news, mm. it, it keeps us afloat that way. We don't drown in the cupboard.
1: Yeah.
0: I'm going to go with it being finding a very old gum tree, uh, a really, really old one that's basically the centre has disappeared and then just putting a door on it. And that, mm, that's yep. your cupboard. It's, it is the tree. You know, you've not had to cut yeah. Uh, one of those great redwoods around.
2: from California. No, or, yeah, let's, let's go and
1: set up shop in a
0: giant North American redwood. Yeah, yeah. the
1: redwoods, or one of those trees felled by HS two, like the huntingham, the huntingham oak. Well, yeah. We'll, make, yeah, we'll make it out of that and honour it.
2: A log cabin made <laughs> out of the trees that those bastards destroyed, yeah. so that they live on in some sense and. And contribute to natural history education.
0: Yes. Fair enough. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Well, there you go. There's there's the answer to both the metaphorical cupboard and the actual real cupboard itself.
2: You but, too um, can summon the cupboard, but we'll never <laughs> give away the spell. <laughs> the incantations <laughs> and the runes are known only to a uh, select few.
0: Well, dear you- listener, send so- us a uh, like that. Yes. Um- your emails, your questions uh, to our email address at cupboard at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter and on Facebook where we get articles, put articles, and put loads of other random things. And our Twitter handle is at NHCupboard. Uh, but if you've liked what you've heard, remember you can leave us a like, subscribe, smash that like button or whatever they get, whatever they get you to do. Um, hit the bell. Hit, hit a bell, yep. Yeah, find a bell, hit a bell. Uh, but you can leave us a review on whatever podcasting service you're on. Uh, oh, and I was just going to say, we've picked up in the last week. We've picked up Norway as uh, listenership. Oh, Bosnia okay. Herzegovina, Russia, and I believe Hungary as well. So oh, well. Then,
2: may we apologise to all those nationalities in advance for <laughs> suffering as as our as our. That's our regular listeners, too. They're, they're, they're migrating to the with... The, tribe.
1: They're all migrating over. Yeah. We're making the whole of Europe suffer. So... <laughs> well, they Bosnia, not that... It's on the on the Mediterranean. It's not that cold, is it? I don't know. I've never been there. I've never, I've never been. Maybe it is. But anyway,
0: we so. just have sort a of review on whatever podcasting service you're listening to on. So that just leaves me to say a big ho, ho, ho to my co-host. Oh. Thank you, Hans.
1: You're very welcome, <laughs>
0: I was expecting you to reply in kind, oh. but okay. Sorry. No. Shoot the glass. Shoot the glass. And uh, a big thank you to uh, you, uh, John McLean.
2: Uh, happy Yuletide, everyone. Happy <laughs> ki It's not a and Christmas be- movie, damn it.
0: It is a Christmas movie. It'll always be a Christmas movie. Oh. And a big thank you and a big Merry Christmas and whatever you're doing to you at home. So, uh, yeah. From all of us here, a big big thank you for listening and a big Merry Christmas
1: and we'll see you next time here in the Natural History Cupboard bye happy Christmas everyone be lovely to one another
2: give the world a Christmas present get vaccinated damn straight eat a mince pie ho ho ho